0: Fast Forward Productions, the women are speaking. We need to start designing the future that we want to live in. I think a lot of people spend time complaining about the past or criticizing what's going on, but it's like being a gardener. What do we want to create? What's the world we want to live in? What does that look like? And then some of us can try to make that happen by describing it or visualizing it for people. What does the new garden look like?
2: We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world
1: with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in.
2: everyone. Welcome to what is for us a very sunny and bright June day, just a few days past the summer solstice or the longest day of the year. But when you hear this, it will be the day before the Feast of St. John, which is June 24th, which is recognized in many places, particularly in Northern Europe and the Scandinavian countries as Midsummer Day. So the night before or the eve of St. John, June 23rd, also called Midsummer Night, as in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. It might be celebrated with bonfires, feasting, dancing, singing, storytelling, all kinds of fun and merrymaking to welcome in the height of this beautiful summer season. Midsummer is such a fun time. I'd love to
1: hear from anyone who has any Midsummer traditions or celebrations. You can call in to the voicemail 443-459-1950 and tell us all about your midsummer festivities. They can be formal, informal. They can be traditions. They can be things that you've done once. I have one. This is a couple of summers ago before COVID when we lived in a different part of the city and there was a Lincoln Park in D.C. For those who know it, it's in Capitol Hill. There was a group of people that would gather every Friday night if the weather was nice and we'd have like a picnic, wine and cheese and stuff in the park, you'd bring something to share. And that same group of people would also do a special midsummer picnic that was a little bit bigger and more involved. And we did that a few times. So I miss that. And I miss those people. But maybe we'll have to do that again. We're in a different
2: part of the city now. Yeah. You'll actually be out at the farm because we'll be away. So maybe you can have a bonfire and Do something fun out here. That's a good idea.
1: So anyways, call us and tell us about your Midsummer traditions, 443-459-1950. We would love to hear about them.
2: Okay. So I have a story about our guest today. It was time to pick a book for our Almanac Book Club, and I was looking around for ideas when I stumbled on a title of a new book that really, really intrigued me. It was called Love, Nature, Magic, Shamanic Journeys into the Heart of My Garden by Maria Rodale. And I began to look into it a little more, and I ran across a video of her explaining that the impetus for her writing this book was her struggle with mugwort in her garden. I was immediately hooked because the entire weekend before, I, too, had been struggling with mugwort in my garden. I had been pulling it. I had been yanking it. I had been spraying it with vinegar. I had been doing everything I could to try to get it out of my garden because I felt like it was taking over. And so I immediately read the book. I learned about her journey with Mugwort, her story of coming to terms with it, and so many more gems from this book. And you'll just have to read it to see for yourself.
1: (laughs) Yes, definitely. Maria Rodale is an explorer in search of the mysteries of the universe. She's an author, artist, activist, and recovering CEO. She serves on the board of the well-known Rodale Institute. Throughout her career, she has advocated for the potential of organic regenerative farming to heal the damage wrought by pesticides and industrial agricultural practices. She is the author of Organic Manifesto, How Organic Food Can Heal Our Planet, Feed the World, and Keep Us Safe, the cookbook, Scratch, and she is the children's book author, Mrs. Pinochle. She was also featured in the documentary, Kiss the Ground. Maria is a mother, grandmother, and self-proclaimed crazy gardener who lives in Pennsylvania right near where she was born.
2: So when I ran across this book, I knew immediately I wanted to get to know Maria, and so we wrote to her, and we're so glad she agreed to come onto The Good Dirt and talk to us. It was such a delight to hear her story and to get a glimpse into her journey in creating this book. Our book club absolutely loved it, and we think you'll be enchanted by this conversation, and like me. You won't be able to get your hands on the book fast enough. So here's Maria Rodale, author of Love, Nature, Magic.
0: I am Maria Rodale. I'm the author of Love, Nature, Magic, Shamanic Journeys into the Heart of My Garden, I am the former CEO of Rodale Incorporated, which was a publishing company of books and magazines on health, wellness, and organic. I grew up on the original farm that started the organic movement in America. So I've had an interesting background filled with all sorts of contradictions and happy moments. I was the third generation to Lead the business and then was responsible for selling it five or six years ago. So now I'm a full time writer, which is kind of what I always wanted to be. I'm
2: happy to be here. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's wonderful. Was it your parents or your grandparents who were the original organic farmers? My grandparents,
0: but I grew up
2: on their farm. You did? Okay. So just talk about that a little bit. I'm just so, I'm so interested. I mean, everyone's heard of the Rodale Institute and now organic farming is, of course, like just part of our everyday language, everyday use, part of all of our lives. So what was it like growing up as that was evolving, stemming from your family? I mean, you can say anything you want about that.
0: Well, when I was little, so I was born in 1962, my grandfather was still alive and the farm, he was just starting to get popular with the 1960s at the same time we were certainly outsiders to most of the world so there was this strange conflict of living in this paradise really the farm was beautiful my grandparents really aspired to create like this sort of english european estate working farm but the hippies were really interested in what we were doing so i grew up with like people driving up to our farm and VW buses and, you know, my sisters would give tours. And so it was, a, it was this very unusual upbringing. I found solace all the time in nature and in the wildlife and the animals. What happened, you know, my grandfather died and then my parents got so frustrated. But, you know, it was hard having all these visitors come to our home that they bought land in Maxitani, which was also larger so they could actually do scientific research on it because the farm I grew up on was fairly small. So that was where the Rodale Institute was moved to and where the farming systems trial was started, which is the longest running study in America comparing organic to conventional
1: agriculture,
0: which was what fueled the growth in Regenerative organic agriculture that we see today.
1: And how much of that were you aware of, like, how trailblazing it all was? Well, when you're a kid, you're
0: aware in a different way. I was aware that we were doing all this important work because, you know, we always had dinner together. At the dinner table, you know, my dad would often bring home guests. And, you know, so I was a witness to tons of really interesting conversations with interesting people. You know, and then I'd go to school and people would make fun of me because. They thought all I ate was tofu and carrots. And I was like, Are you kidding me? My mom would never touch tofu. <laughs> <laughs> she was Pennsylvania Dutch. So I was also witness to the misunderstandings that happened and felt ostracized by it.
1: So you talk about going to school. So what was that like elementary school, middle school? Yeah, all of it. All the way through, I guess. <laughs> and how long did you live at the farm?
0: I lived there till I was about 18.
2: Wow. What's interesting to me from that standpoint is just that shining a light on that cultural shift there and all the different elements and all the different generations that were involved in that. You You as a child and your grandparents and your grandparents' idea of like this large working farm and then the sort of more granola types coming in and having a different picture of it. But there you all were just shaping culture, shaping food culture, shaping history, actually. That's fascinating. I feel really privileged to speak to someone that's witnessed that and lived through it in your family. It's been interesting.
1: Yeah. How about your journey from 18, you move off the farm, and then sort of what happens between that and becoming CEO of the Rodale Institute? You know, at that point,
0: I had an older brother who was considered the heir of the business. So, you know, I sort of was living my life working summers at the Rodale Institute. But then I got pregnant and I decided to keep my daughter so I went to college locally as a day student. I interned for this, you know, progressive PR company in New York, and they offered me a job in Washington, which I mentioned. I had, you know, I got an apartment. I got my daughter in the friend's school. She was in preschool. I took my last college exam, and on that very day, my brother died of AIDS. Oh, wow. I know. So at that point, my father looked to me to help him the business and with the mission, you know, with the Institute. And I was inclined that way anyway. So I spent a year in Washington. He said, you know, I'll give you a year. And then when I moved back, I worked closely with him until he was sadly killed in a car accident in Russia in 1990. So I worked with my mother to run the business. And then after she passed, I ran it until The publishing industry just kind of imploded started to implode and that's when the next generation of the family who i was thinking i was gonna you know pass the company to said we don't want this you know can you sell it and i was like yes i can and we
1: did and you said that was five years ago now so like 2018 yes
2: 2018. so tell me what you mean when you say that publishing industry started to implode shine a little light on that
0: well what happened is as you know facebook and google and amazon and all the social media companies started to grow they expected content for free and they also siphoned all the advertising money out of the whole industry so publishers were left with assets that nobody wanted to pay for because they could get it for free online and the advertisers didn't want to buy into and support because they could get more targeted reach online. So that's why you don't see very many magazines.
1: So that was the main, so Rodale's putting out the magazine. You also published books, right?
0: Yeah. So we published Men's Health in 99 countries around the world, Women's Health, Prevention, Organic Life, which was originally Organic Gardening, Runner's World, Bicycling. And then we published books like Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth and The South Beach Diet, all kinds of great books. But that, business was also challenged just by people not reading as much, you know, because they're watching shows on Netflix. Gosh. I was glad to let go of the business.
2: Is there still a publishing company? I mean, you still see books put out by Rodale. Is that still going on? So we sold the company to
0: Hearst. So Hearst kept the magazines and sold the books to Penguin Random House. So there is still a Rodale Books imprint. There's a Rodale Kids imprint, which I launched, you know, the kids imprint. There's still magazines, but much smaller. It had become just a clickbait game. So, you know, that's why I like I really caution people, you know, be careful what you click on because,
2: you know, you're creating the world by what you click on. That's so true. Yeah. And every time you click to your point, you're shaping the algorithm that shows you what you're going to see. Exactly. Exactly. I do want to ask you, your life is so intriguing, and so you're just such a cross-section of so many cultural changes, really, that have happened in your lifetime and your career. I'm curious, is there any particular aha moment that really helped shape you in the direction you took towards what you're now doing? I was trying to
0: think about if there has been an aha moment. And I mean, there was definitely an aha moment about writing Love, Nature, Mad, but All along the way, it's kind of like I was just both following the clues that the universe was giving me, but also balancing what I felt I had to do out of duty with what I needed to do to keep myself sane and happy. So for me, I needed to write. I needed to garden. I needed to create just to keep myself alive. But, you know, I had a lot of duties and responsibilities, you know. With the business, with my parents, with my mother. So that'll I just it's like, you know, following the path.
2: Following the clues. You talk about that a little bit. Would you refer to inner impulses or ideas or synchronicities? Talk about those clues. So
0: there's clues both as a just a person, like I like to say, you know, I'm an explorer in search of the mysteries of the universe, you know, and it's like, oh well, that's interesting. You know? But then there's also the clues that I learned as being a CEO, which was about how to trust my gut. All the mistakes I made when I didn't trust my gut. I also have this saying that I use, which was like, always trust your nose. Because I have a very, you know, sensitive nose and I like I garden based on fragrance. I love scented plants and flowers. But at work, there were times when I would meet people and they didn't smell right, that they smelled bad. They just didn't smell right. And I'd override those things because not logical and rational. And then later I'd be like, <laughs> wish I would have listened to my nose, you know, wish I would have listened to my gut. So I think we all have senses that are predominant in some ways. And, you know, less, you know, but for me, it's my nose.
2: Oh, I love that. That's amazing. So let's get into the story of Love Nature Magic and how that came to be. So just tell us whatever you'd like to about that.
0: So Love Nature Magic came from a real aha moment where I was working in my garden, trying to eradicate mugwort, which is a very aggressive, quote unquote, weed in my area. And a landscaper had told me you really can only get rid of it with Roundup. And I was like, no way am I going to use Roundup. But I was like striving for this garden perfection ideal that I think a lot of us gardeners have grown up with, whether it's a British garden or an American garden, you know, you kind of have this image in your head of what the perfect garden is. And that's what I was striving for. You know, my favorite garden tool is this a hori hori knife, which, you know, so I was like stabbing at this cord. I just like stopped and took a break. And I looked at this plant and I really, I felt it calling out to me and saying like, what are you doing? Wait, stop. Time out. What are you doing? I had been doing shamanic journeying for 10 years. And this was during the pandemic when this happened. And the local shaman who I worked with was doing these weekly Zoom journey sessions that we were doing just kind of for fun, but also for connection. And that night was one of the sessions. And I was like, I'm gonna journey to Mugwort, see what it tells me. And that experience was just mind blowing for me and kind of made me curious about every other thing in my garden, especially the things that annoyed me, because, you know, made me realize that those things that annoy us really have the most to teach us. And I wanted to just not be annoyed all the time.
1: Oh, my gosh, that's so great. And also, what is a shamanic journey? Okay,
0: so shamanic journeying is something that pretty much anybody can do if you're open to it, it's not, you don't have to be a shaman to do it. And it's a kind of form of meditation to the sound of a drum or a rattle. You need the sound. The sound is the highway that takes you on this journey. So there's things, and I write about this, you know, that you should do to protect yourself, like open sacred space. You know, there's techniques to make it more effective, but It basically involves just laying there anywhere on, you know, I do it at a couch in my home, entering a portal in your mind. So it's an active imagination journey to the sound of a drum where you're visiting other realms, whether it's in your mind or real, who knows, but you see things, you hear things, you smell things. And... It's basically an ancient technique that's from around the world. People in every culture do this. So it's not like, oh, it's just the Siberians or the South Americans. Spirit, or whatever it is, speaks to you in kind of metaphor and images. So it's a little bit like a puzzle. Sometimes they tell you exactly what you should do, but other times it's like they show you pictures and you have to kind of figure it out. So, you know, when you finish the journey, it's like a dream. You have to write it all down or else you're going to like forget about it. I just have done it for the last 10 years because it was I found it really helped me figure out what to do, what not to do. It was just, you know, my my guidance, a little bit more directed than just meditating.
1: So you have someone someone's leading is that person doing the sounds?
0: You don't need to have someone lead it. So she was just doing that that was a, a unique situation where she was leading the journeying. When I do it at home, I do it alone and I use a drum and that's it. You're just like, I'm going to go on a journey right now. I'm going to go on a journey. You set your intention. You know, you press the start button and lay down and 20 minutes later for me. I want to do that. I know. Do you need any substances? No, no, no. This is completely
2: drug free. Amazing. Completely drug-free. I've always wanted to go back and do the basic training and explore this avenue of going perhaps deeper into the subconscious, deeper maybe even than dreams or just maybe another gateway to your subconscious other than dream work. But to your point, there's a method and you do need training to know what you're doing. This is something I've been meaning to do for like 30 years. I'm not kidding.
1: So you can't just get on your phone, get the app and do it without getting trained? I would say you can just get on and do it.
2: You think so? Because, well, to
0: be a shaman, you definitely need to be trained. Right.
1: And that would mean you're leading other
0: people. That would mean you're leading other people. That means you're committing yourself to like healing and working with, you know, helping other people. I equate journeying to like how meditation or yoga was 30 years ago. Yeah, it's good to have a teacher or somebody to get you started, but you can do yoga at home or, you know, you don't need a teacher to watch you meditate every day. You know, I did take a course where, where I first really learned about it, which was helpful. I don't think I would have discovered it on my own. Or maybe I would, you because know, when I look back at some of the, my writings, you know, from like 40 or 50 years ago, I was kind of doing it on my own. I just didn't know what I was doing. And I you know, wasn't opening sacred space and protecting myself. So, okay. What's the app? (laughs) It's in my, I write around it in my book. It's like mindful bear
2: shamanic drumming. Oh my gosh. We'll look it up. And I'm so glad you said that one of the aspects of your book that I enjoyed so much was the way you normalize shamanic journeying. And you even say in the book, you don't have to go to South America. You don't have to take these drugs that make you throw up. That all sounds very exotic and kind of Rengi and all that. But it is something you can do, as you say, in your own living room and you can just decide to do it anytime. And so if people are interested in a more familiar training, there are websites and such and we can include some of them in the show notes and you can read about it yourself, do your research. And if you're interested in this, you decide what's right for you. But Maria, you just make it seem so approachable and such a valuable tool exploring the workings of your unconscious, much like dream work which I'm familiar with and have done a lot of. So this is very, very intriguing to me. I want to tell the story of how I discovered you. Oh, I want to hear it. Okay. So we have an online membership community, The Almanac, and we have a book group within that community that meets every season. We pick a book for the season. It was time to pick a title for our spring discussion. I realized I really didn't have any ideas. And so early one morning, I meditated in the morning. And right after my meditation, I said, I need guidance on the next book for the group. Just give me some ideas. okay?" so I just put it out there. And then a few minutes later, when I picked up my phone to check things, there was the cover of Love, Nature, Magic. It was on the phone. And I said, "Okay, there's the book. I got my answer like right there. And then I thought, I wonder what this is about. And I clicked. I don't even know what I clicked. But there you were telling that story about mugwort, the one you just told on here. And guess what? This was a Monday morning. Guess what I had been doing all weekend? I had been spraying mugwort with vinegar. Not with Roundup. With vinegar. Don't worry. Uh,
0: <laughs> OK. Shoot. <laughs>
2: Right. I would never use Roundup. Never. You know, I would have to be fired from this show if I used Roundup. I know I would. Even though I'm the boss, I would fire myself. But, you know, I've been spraying it with vinegar. And I've struggled with mugwort over the years. And, you know, you're just a little bit north of us. And so I'm sure it's the same thing in both of our gardens where it will just go everywhere. And I went through this thing last year, really talking to it. I had already kind of figured out, well, these plants, you know, I believe that plants are sentient. And talking to it and saying, you know, I really like you. I love your fragrant and you're really pretty, too. And you have these beautiful little blue silvery leaves and you're really lovely. But I, I want to grow something other than you. Can you just like have some manners here? You know, you can't have the whole space. So I had been like, doing that and it's going to sound kind of crazy, but it sort of moved over into like more in certain areas and less in others. So I thought, OK, maybe something's happening here. But when I walked out early in the spring and I saw that it was really coming up in my beautiful, lush, abundant strawberry bed that I'm really kind of proud of and it was getting in there, I thought, "Uh uh-uh, no, I I want my strawberries. And then I thought, okay, no poisons and vinegar. I know vinegar, it only withers it down to the ground. It doesn't affect the roots. Those crazy, crazy roots that I've, I've tried digging it up to and that that does nothing. So I know it's only temporary. I thought I'm just going to keep it down until my strawberries can get going and then they can work it out. And so this is what I was doing the whole weekend. This was my weekend project. And I had this thing Monday morning with you and seeing the book cover on my phone and then immediately hearing you talk about the mugwort. And there you go. And I sat down probably within the hour and emailed you. Do you know like, how the book popped up on your phone? I do not. All I know is that I picked up the phone and, you know, how you press the press the home button and there it was. There was the, the cover of the book. I don't know. No offense, mom. That sounds like a boomer
1: tech moment where you're just like, I'm just gonna. That's love nature magic is
0: what it is. OK. <laughs> that's exactly, you know, the other thing that you mentioned you do dream work. Well, mugwort is the plant of dreaming. Ah, oh. So that's really what its primary traditional message is, is that it's, you know, if you want to have more vivid dreams, you take a bath of mugwort or you drink it or, you know, you smudge with it. So there you go. That's Love Nature Magic. It is magic. And
2: the thing is, like, I know that and I feel like I've been friendly enough with it. We still have a problem. So I was very interested in your journey.
0: And and I have to say, you know, so that journey happened two years ago. You know, now it's spring and I'm going out and yeah, there's mugwort. And so I think what I've learned from the whole process, journeying to many, many different plants and animals and insects, is that it's our expectations that have to shift. And we have to soften our approaches and our efforts maybe your strawberries are also saying you know because i've tried strawberries and they grow great the first couple of years and then they you know maybe they're saying they need to be moved or they need to be sorted or something
2: i'm getting that more and more and i just i just feel like i'm undergoing this really personal shifting and transformation in my own relationship to the land around me and we've been talking about this a lot on her here lately we just interviewed. Mary Reynolds. I don't know if you've met her yet, but you can listen to our interview with her. You will absolutely love it. I know you would be very good friends with her. You all are exactly on the same page. The art rewilding. Yes, I followed her and purchased that book. That's that's awesome.
0: It's about really a liberal radical, but you know we <laughs> have to kind of decolonize our relationship with nature. Yeah, and not expect to force it into you know being something that it doesn't want to be yeah
2: that's so good it's so <laughs> it's and it's so true and that this message is it's something that has to sort of seep in you know it's not something you read and you go oh oh it, it's sort of it has to kind of creep into our psyches like lugwort <laughs> <I know. laughs> has to take over
0: but, has to invade our psyches yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I had another kind of encounter with mugwort that I thought was really interesting. We had gone to a family wedding and they took the family out to this lovely garden to have the photos made. I was observing this wonderful little bush and it was so pretty and and it was so contained. And at first I didn't recognize it. And then I I look and that is mugwort. It was behaving, you know. It just fit right where it was and it was adorning the garden. And this was a very neat, trim, tidy garden. I didn't know what to think of that. And then I thought, or someone is out here just really, really, really like every day on their hands and knees and just really involved with ripping this thing out. So it was interesting. I think more and more, that's been two or three years ago now, and more and more since this idea of our gardens, our cultivated gardens wanting to be wilder places. They're telling us they want to be wilder. And if we're listening, all of us, you know, we love our gardens and we're out there getting our hands in the dirt and in our minds, we're connecting. Are we connecting or are we controlling? And how did we get these messages of
0: what a garden should be? Because, you know, like, again, my gardening has really changed since I've written this book. And You know, I used to be like, oh, I've got to clean up the garden, you know, in the in the fall. You know, now we know. You're not supposed to do that because you're killing off the pollinators, which are, you know, their little eggs are, in, you know, in those dead branches. I mean, I used to, if if I didn't clean up in the fall, I'd have landscapers come, you know, to help me in March. To and so no, it's no, no, you wait till like May till it's warm out. And just yesterday, actually, I posted it on Instagram. I was walking, and I have this huge. Stand of mugwort in my front yard that I just let it go. And, you know, there were like two praying mantis egg sacks on them. And I was like, yeah, that's how it should be, you know? What's amazing is it's actually less work for us. That's the thing I've realized, view of how a garden should be is very like work, 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 work. And everything has to be hard and disciplined. And that's the patriarchy, you know, speaking through us. And we can still grow things and and enjoy, you know, bounties. But the more we relax into it and go with the flow, the less we're destroying the environment. The more we're letting wildness kind of do what it needs to do to keep us safe.
1: Yeah, it's a patriarchy. And to bring it back to your radical liberalism, (laughs) I think it's also a form of colonialism. That's such an interesting way to put it. My mom and I have also been talking a lot about lawns recently. And when you look at the actual history of lawns and why we have lawns, it's, it's all just about capitalism and to show wealth and to show having a lawn or a green space that doesn't do anything or that we can control that's very manicured shows that you have the, the labor on. Hand. Of course, you're not doing it, but you have like the labor and the time and the resources to do. It's literally just to show wealth and power and control over and to keep you more separate from your community.
0: In my community, I started serving on the environmental advisory board of my township. And I learned that there's an ordinance that you can't let your grass grow over six inches. And you can't have a meadow in your front yard. That's where I think a lot of us who are changing our perceptions, we have to get involved locally to like weed out the ordinances that are preventing nature from
2: being what it needs to be. Yeah. Yes. We talk about this in our interview with Mary Reynolds, if anybody wants to go back and hear another discussion about lawns and so forth. We talk about this problem of neighbors complaining, and then there's also the issue of homeowners associations. And we've run across this a lot with a lot of our guests and friends and people who come to Lady Farmer for ideas and so forth. People don't want to see the wildness. They want tidy. They want control. And this is just part of our culture. The idea of the ark, Mary Reynolds' ark, she recommends putting up a sign that says, this is an ark. And with the website, so people go, oh, this is something intentional. I wonder what they're doing. And then they'll ask questions. And then, you know, maybe they'll sort of start to understand as we, in your words, change our perception and change our behaviors and change the outward presentation of our home. And our possibly inside our homes, outside our homes, inside ourselves. All these things—it sort of—it it emanates into a lot of different aspects. When you start a, start observing what wants to emerge, how do we access the wildness of ourselves as well as our gardens and so forth? Actually, the other day, I'm having to negotiate this approach a lot with my husband. You know, he really appreciates you know good maintenance, and yeah, there's a lot of things that really mean a lot to him. And I I have to hand it to him. He's been a really great sport, really coming to understand and to see how I want to implement these ideas around it. We have a little seven acre farm and we've mowed a lot of it, a lot of it. And so our approach this year is we're going to mow less. I had to sort of talk about this a little bit and get him on board with it, which he did. And over the years, we've had a lawn service come and do the a lot of the mowing, not not all of it. My husband does like out in the paddocks and so forth, but around the house and what we call, you know, the yard. And so it was time for him to come. He texted me, says, time to start mowing. And I said, I need to talk to you first. So he came, you know, his big, you know, truck and all the, the machines and all this. And I walked him around and I said, this is what we're going to do. You know, he was just like, what? He was really very, very sweet and understanding about it. I was explaining to him, we want to see more wildlife, we wanna see more butterflies, we wanna see more bugs. And he goes, oh, okay, okay. In the end, and we had negotiated, negotiated a new price. There was all, it, the whole thing was just different than he's ever done before. And he's been doing this for us for nine years, say. And I asked him, I said, well, what do you think? And he goes, it's very, very confusing. But he said, I will try. And he said, you might have some complaints at first. And I said, I will not complain. I promise you I won't complain. Thank you so much for trying and understanding. And he sort of walked off sort of, okay, I'm just telling that story because this man, his livelihood is, is going in and, you know, mowing all these areas all the time, all, every day, all day, all summer. He's supposed to go in and make everything look neat. And here I am going, we're not going to do this anymore, but I'm, I'm not going to take away his job. I don't want to take away his job. So I'm just saying, I want you to do this instead of this. So that's what it's like when you're paving a different path.
0: Well, you know, I think that's one of the big challenges to making change is there's a lot of people whose livelihoods, you know, depend on doing things the way they are now. You know, like I often think about why do we keep using Roundup and, you know, chemicals? It's like, well, there's a lot of people who have jobs there. And then a lot of people still buy that. So it's change on both sides. And this is something that we always found at Rodale is that the biggest change is driven by people demanding change, by changing their behavior, not buying chemicals, buying organic food. You know, as more people buy organic food, more farmers switch to growing it. So we have a lot of power, but it's also scary and weird being the first
2: ones to demand it, you know, or make the change. Definitely. Well, you know, this time of year when you walk into those big garden centers and they're just floor to ceiling, big, giant bags and sacks of all of this stuff. It smells so bad. Yes. And every bit of it's going to wash into the water and it's going to, and it's just, once you're heart and mind starts opening those experiences more and more, I think, have more impact on a person. I don't know the answer to that, except just we try to do our thing and teach people and talk about these things. Talk about it. I mean, how many people listening to this have never heard of such an idea? So
1: that's what we do. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing it. (laughs) Going back to journeys for a minute. I'm like so fascinated by this. Are there notable journeys that maybe didn't make it into the book or that you haven't taken that you're like, I need a journey about that. And you kind of Is that how it works? I've done many, many journeys that are in the book. And I've done
0: quite a few since I've written the book. Some are just general, like, please tell me what I need to see that I'm not seeing. Others are like very specific. So for the last few months, I've had a fruit fly that's been like buzzing around me all the time. One. (laughs) One fruit fly. I mean, uh, it's obviously it's multi generations of right. proof flies, <laughs> but it's <laughs> they live like two hours. They don't live very long. <laughs> they, they live a week. <laughs> yeah. So when things come to my attention like that, I'll be like, you know, rather than saying you're annoying, I'm going to kill you. You know, it's like, okay, what are you trying to tell me? <laughs> so journeying for me is like a lifelong thing that I will always do because it's so useful and valuable. And you know, once you develop I mean, I'm going to call it spirit. It's like once you develop a relationship with the spirits that are there helping you and guiding you, it's like it's almost like you have a responsibility to show your appreciation by doing what they ask. And they never ask you to do anything dangerous. They give you guidance. So you should follow it.
1: Can you tell us what the fruit fly was telling you? So
0: the fruit fly, before I journeyed, I looked it up. They like salt and sweat. I don't know if you know this, I have written about it, but two months ago, I actually had a stroke and was in the hospital. So the fruit fly actually came to the hospital. Now, I did have, my daughter brought me some fruit from home, you know, so maybe it came like, it was just it was like the fruit fly was around me before I had the stroke with me in the hospital the whole time. And then even when I came home for like two or three weeks. So the journey was like, okay, what is going on here? What are you trying to tell me? And what it said was that it's, you know, because it likes salt and sweat, it was like helping to kind of eat away my suffering. And also it asked me, it said, you know, what we have to start doing and what it wants me to start thinking about. And I've gotten this from other journeys too. And that's what looking back and reading through them helps to see patterns is that we need to start designing the future that we want to live in. I think a lot of people spend time complaining about the past or criticizing what's going on, but it's like being a gardener. What do we want to create? What's the world we want to live in? What does that look like? And then some of us can try to make that happen by describing it or visualizing it for people. That's where I need to start focusing my attention going forward is helping to create what does the new garden look like where wildness free. What does a home look like that's environmentally friendly? What does a community look like that doesn't rely on cars? These are the things I think we have to start designing, you know, and even what does the healthcare system look like that works in ways that really actually heal us?
1: That's a wise fruit fly. I know. <laughs> that <laughs> you fruit fly. That's amazing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and you heard his or her message i don't know which i don't know which either by just being <laughs> open to it and just open opening your heart opening your senses opening your imagination as you have so brilliantly in in this book and showing uh, all of us the worlds that are out there to be discovered if we just you know just open ourselves up a little bit oh, i don't know it's just so profound all that what you just said about imagining all the new ways that we can move forward into the future, designing the future. You're so right. We do spend so much time
1: sort of like wallowing
2: in and how do we get here? The big buzzword sustainability, which we use a lot on this podcast. And we often comment, we really need more than sustainability, folks. You know, we don't really want to sustain what's going on here. We want to redesign the future. <laughs> I love that. So just that reframing is just very, very powerful. Also, I mean, I wrote a book a long time ago called Organic Manifesto
0: because I wanted to understand how did, you know, how did we get here and why do we use chemicals? Where did they come from? I write about the history of the word sustainability in that book because my father, who really started the farming systems trial that compared organic to chemical farming, went to Washington and he was like, you know, we want to get funding for organic. And because my dad was an Olympic ski shooter, he got, you know, he got to sit down with the kind of the good old boys, you know, in Washington, you know, with the chemical lobby. And they actually agreed to compromise on the word sustainability because organic was too much of a hot button. And if it was sustainable, the chemical companies could still get their fingers on some of that money. So at that point, my dad was like, we don't want to be sustainable. He's like, okay, I'll agree to that. But what we really want to be is regenerative. We want to make the earth better. We we want to tap into nature's natural ability to regenerate. So that's the word we've been using all this time. And actually now it's like, it's the new buzzword when it comes to agriculture is regenerative agriculture. And the Institute has created a, a regenerative organic standard, which isn't just about keeping chemicals out, but it's also about animal, humane animal treatment and social justice and fair trade and all that.
2: And how many years ago
0: was that? Yeah, that would have been in the 80s. The 80s. He, yeah, he died in 1990. So what a trailblazer. He developed this idea. And I remember driving with him in the car somewhere and he said to me, he said, I feel like with the word regeneration and regenerative agriculture, like I have fulfilled my purpose. Like this is my legacy. This is the most important thing I've ever done in my life. And then, you know, he died a couple, like maybe even that year, the word just kind of like sunk a little bit. And now it's like taken on a life of its own. Yeah. Just on its own. And it, so it's really beautiful. It's kind of like planting a seed, you know. You plant the seed. Things go dark for a while.
1: You don't see it for a while. You have to wait. And then, you know, a tree comes out. The world wasn't ready for it. The seed just had to be planted.
2: Yeah, he was so before his time. That's amazing. And so every time you hear that word, you must think of your dad. He's just all there. Yeah. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you've evolved in your own gardening and your own relationship to the land around you since you wrote Love, Nature, Magic. Well, I've definitely become a more gentle
0: gardener, more relaxed about the whole thing. So I, I don't clean up. In the fall, you know, in the past when I would call landscapers and say, you know, get my garden ready for spring, you know, they'd rake away all the fallen leaves and then add mulch. It's like, no, the fallen leaves are the mulch. And I'm also a lot more forgiving when plants show up that I don't know what they are. I didn't plant them there. I'm just more curious. It's like, you know, who are you and why are you here? And and I'm getting a little bit more courageous about eating Sort of more foraging, and I don't know. I think a lot of us are naturally afraid of things. But like last year, I fried dandelion flowers for the first time. They were really freaking good. You know, just being more experimental and gentle and forgiving. Also, I'm always constantly talking to everything now.
1: So, All right, shoot, there's Maria talking <laughs> to her plants again. <laughs> they like it. I love they it. Like it. I did just see a TikTok about. This guy he's like, Appalachian, something something. I'll try to find it so we can link to it. But he fries up dandelion flowers and makes these like little dandelion flower patties. uh-huh. And he's like, my mom used to make us this. like this is like an old appalachian like delicacy, like a little fritter, a dandelion fritter. I'd never heard of that before. And then you just said that
0: it's delicious, and also, you know, i, I scientifically, what I've learned is that, you know, when you talk to plants, you're releasing carbon dioxide, which is what they eat. They digest carbon dioxide. Oh, duh. (laughs) And then give us
2: oxygen.
1: We're like feeding them. It's like fertilizer. It makes so much sense.
2: Oh my gosh. So, Maria, what does slow living mean to you?
0: I've been learning more and more about slow living. I thought I was learning a lot about it when I sold my company and like I didn't have to like set my alarm and wake up and go to meetings, you know, but. Actually, you know, the gift of my stroke was really teaching me about slow living. Like, I don't make lists anymore. I'm not obsessed with checking things off the list, you know, and making sure I do everything on my list every day. It's like, I kind of just tap into what I feel like doing in the moment. And I end up getting a lot done, you know, just maybe just as much, but, you know, I take naps and, you know, I just am a lot more mellow about everything. You know, even my hand, which was affected, which I can now have full use of, but it's like there's a softness to it that wasn't there before that I feel was was a kind of a message to me to be softer. I'm fortunate in that I can afford to have a slow life. I don't think everybody can necessarily, but I also
1: think it's a state of mind that anybody can cultivate. It's a systemic problem that it's harder for some people to, to access that than others. That's something that I think collectively we're learning and we're collectively figuring out that we need to combat.
0: Another aspect of it, which I realized, you know, before, was this kind of capitalistic message we've always gotten, which is like, you have to be a success, you have to like make a bajillion dollars. You're not worthy until you've like proven yourselves. It's like no. <laughs> I love that. (laughs)
2: Love that.
1: (laughs) So great. I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I don't think so. Not anymore. Not anymore now
1: that we're older and wiser. That's right. So Maria, what does the good dirt mean to you?
0: Well, good dirt. I mean all dirt is good to me, whether you're making mud pies or growing food. I mean, I think good dirt is just, it's like everything. It's essential to life. And the more I've learned recently about not just the microbiome in the soil, which is like incredibly amazing, but we also have that microbiome in our gut. They're connected. So, you know, you need good soil to create good food, to create a healthy gut, to create a healthy body, to create a healthy world. So it's all just connected. And there's no such thing as bad dirt in my mind.
1: Heck yeah. (laughs) Well, this has been so amazing. We've really loved talking to you. I hope that we get to talk again, meet again, maybe meet in person. That'd be really fun. That would be great. Thank you. Of course. Is there anything else before we sign off for the day that you would like the listeners to understand about the work that you're doing or about the book? Obviously, I would like people to buy the book. Heck yeah.
0: I also did the audio recording of the book. So that is a fun way to listen to the book. Although if you get the audio version, you don't get the resource list at the back of the book, which I think is something, you know, if you're interested in any of this stuff, um, resources about shamanism, about journeying or gardening, there's a section at the back of my book that can get more information. Thank you so much for having me i love talking to you guys love to hear your mugwort stories it's so
2: (laughs) fun oh we love it too (laughs) so i have loved talking to you i've been looking forward to this for weeks loved your book our community is loving the book the almanac and we're excited about having our discussion groups coming up we divide it over two discussion So thank you so much. And I hope that we can continue this discussion again down the road. We'll have a part two with Maria Rodell, if you're open to it at some point. I would love that. Thank you so much.
0: And happy gardening.
2: Oh, thank you. You too. Okay. Have a great day. Thanks, Maria. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our
2: show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. Original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at we are Lady
1: Farmer. That's we are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on the Good Dirt. Goodbye.